last week I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, talking about the gospel and the work that Christ has done to give us the grace to stand on the gospel. We talked about the fact that the gospel is both personal, it is God saving me, but it's also corporate, God saving the body, and that we can't live as an individual apart from the body of Christ, that we are here as the body of Christ to build the kingdom. And so today, as I'm preaching, I want to build on that corporate aspect and, and talk about Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, um, and talk about what does community life look like? What does it mean for us to live here at Shehalem Valley Presbyterian as the body of Christ? So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes 4. And I'm going to read a little bit earlier than, than verse 9, because this fits in a context of what precedes it. I want to begin in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, we do recognize that your word is truth, that you speak to us through the truth of your word, that, that being in your word is an active part of how you grow and change us, that work of sanctification, by which your spirit cooperates with us to grow us. And Father, we do pray that as we engage with the truth of your word this morning, <clears throat> that you will accomplish that work of sanctification. Give us a deeper love for you, a deeper love for your body, and use us both in the body and in the world. We pray in your precious name. Amen. The context for community is creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, not only does God say, let us make man in our image, and male and female, he created them, but, but preceding that, God says, after he has created the world and created the animals, and Adam has named the animals, the one time God makes a comment about his work of creation and says it is not good, is when Adam has been created, the animals exist, and God is interacting with Adam, but Adam is alone. God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God creates Eve. But the truth of the matter is, God is actually creating community. God is creating the interaction and the relationships broadly. At this point, there are two. But it's all of humanity that relates to one another. So we're created to exist in community, and Ecclesiastes 4 is going to help us to look at what that community concretely looks like. It is an intentional, gospel-focused community. It's not just 
a mass of people. It's not just an assembly. It's not just happening to interact with people or happening to be in the presence of others. It's not just accidental. It is intentional, gospel-focused community. And as we look at this passage, I want to focus on three characteristics of those relationships. The first is mutual knowledge. The second is mutual engagement. And the third is mutual respect. So let's look at what it means to experience mutual knowledge. And the main idea I want you to take from that thought is that we see each other. <clears throat> this passage talks about two cooperating and knowing each other well enough to know when one falls. Now, he may be speaking of an actual physical fall. But we fall in many, many, many ways. Our church in the United States has had many leaders experience falls that have been taking place over an extended time, but have been secret until that fall was exposed. In a sense, it's kind of like what happened at my house several years back, where at one point in our master bedroom, Laura and I began to see a, a flurry of carpenter ants, winged carpenter ants flying around our bedroom. They were the normal-sized carpenter ants, but we'd, we'd obviously kill them. We finally located where they were coming from and thought that we had dealt with the issue by spraying ant killer into the frame of the window where the ants were coming out. But about two weeks later, as I'm looking at the window again and checking it, I see carpenter ants. An inch and a half to two inch tall carpenter ants. I've never seen them that big. Flying in masses out the outside, thank goodness, of the same window. I thought, well, I can't let this continue. I've got to do something about this. And, and, and so I went to the hardware store and I bought a tub of boric acid, which is a powder that you use to kill ants. And I found this wonderful, nice, neat, small hole in the frame of our window. And I stood on the, the first story roof and stuck the nozzle into that small hole and squeezed. And I thought, that's weird, as the paint began to move as I applied pressure to the boric acid. It was a beautiful paint job. It was a really strong paint job. It was multiple layers. But, but what I began to realize in that moment of sheer panic, it's all since been repaired. You don't have to worry about what's ongoing. But I realized that behind that paint was no board. It was unattached. There was a beautiful picture, a beautiful mask, so to speak, of a trim board. And, and I, I, I love looking up the white trim board that surrounded this large 80 by 100 inch window um, until I realized it was a facade. But it was not hard to see when I came close to that facade that there was rot underneath. And it was extensive. You don't get two inch carpenter ants until they're about 10 years old. So there had been damage in that wall. The carpenter ants, fortunately, 
just, just as an aside for those of you who are novices, carpenter ants eat dry rot wood. They don't eat good wood. If they'd been termites, I would have had a much bigger issue because termites eat wood good or bad. But I had a massive colony of carpenter ants that were eating a significant amount of dry rot in my wall, all of which was masked by a wonderful coat of paint. We're called to see each other. We're called to look beyond the facade. In class today, somebody was talking about, but, but how do you know what's going on in someone else's lives? And brothers and sisters, the limiting factor for you to know what's going on in our lives here isn't whether or not we're willing to share. That's not the significant hindrance. The question is, how much will you look? Honestly, we're open books. I don't know how many of you have ever been in the front of a class standing as a teacher, but you know firsthand that you're not surprised by what the kids are doing in the back row. The question isn't how well they can hide. The question is, how much do I want to address? What will I do to manage discipline in my classroom? It's not an issue of you're oblivious to what's taking place. It's an issue of what's the best way to manage what I know. And the issue for us as the body of Christ is we consider that thought of mutual knowledge is what am I willing to do with what I already see? What am I willing to do? One of the things that's great about this congregation is we love to talk over coffee. But I encourage you to take that opportunity and focus it as intentional, gospel-shaped fellowship. Ask questions. Make eye contact. Look at one another and care. Because... When we, when we ask the question, how are you? We were talking about this in class as well today. What we're, what we're saying will determine how we respond. Frequently when we in our culture say, how are you? There is an expected response of, I'm fine, how are you? And then we go on and do whatever else we're gonna do. It, it, it's a pro forma conversation. Dottie was sharing that on the reservation at Warm Springs, when you ask, how are you, you need to be ready to have a conversation because they'll tell you. I want us to be that kind of people. I want us not simply to do pro forma, but I want us to listen. I want us to engage, which is the second characteristic, mutual engagement. We care. Um, this passage says, woe to the one who does not have another who will lift him up. <clears throat> We're called both to pick each other up and to be willing to be picked up. We're called to mess with one another's lives. But that requires a particular kind of person. 
because you can mess with somebody's life in a really destructive way. You can mess with superiority, you can mess with pride, you can mess with a lack of compassion, you can mess with a desire to find purity and, and criticize failure, or you can mess with humility. You can mess with compassion. You can engage with love. In mutual knowledge, the thought is to see. In mutual engagement, the thought I want you to keep in focus is you are worth hurting with. As a people, we tend to have the mindset, I don't want to hurt. Pain is to be avoided at all costs. Um, one of the reasons that we simply don't see what we honestly do see is because I don't want to hurt anymore. I don't want to have to go through difficulty because, because you hurt. I want you to look at the bottom quote on the front of the worship folder. All of them, I think, are actually very helpful with what we're talking about this morning, but this one in particular. In a contagious world, we learn to keep our distance, which is what we're talking about. I see but don't see. If we get too close to those who are suffering, we might get infected by their pain. Mutual engagement, the key thought is you are worth hurting with. You matter. You are an image bearer. You should not be alone. We might get infected by their pain. It may not be convenient or comfortable, but only when you get close enough to catch their hurt will they be close enough to catch your love. Jesus sees and Jesus cares. In, in Luke 7, we read the story of Jesus and his disciples walking past the village of Nain. As they are walking in this massive number of thousands, they see a crowd of hundreds coming out of the village in a funeral procession. And Jesus not only sees the hundreds of people, but he sees the one woman who is both a widow and who has lost her only son. Now, the author of that epistle, the gospel, understands that this woman's situation is that she's lost all economic security. Her husband, who had the home in which she lived, has died. And her son, who inherited that home, not her, her only son, has died. And so now she, like Ruth, in the story of the book of Ruth, is, is, is at risk. Because she has no home, she has no possession, she has no food, and she's going to die. Jesus sees this crowd and sees this woman, and he goes to her because Luke tells us he felt compassion. And he says to her, don't be afraid. Which is an absolutely ludicrous statement to make unless he's about to act. Because she has every reason to be terrified. She's going to die. Not just because of the broken heart, but because of the economic realities of her situation. She will die. And he says, don't be afraid. But then he acts. And he touches the body of her dead son, which makes him ritually unclean, except for the fact that he's the Messiah. 
And instead of touching a dead body, he raises that dead boy and gives him back to her mother, his mother. Mutual knowledge and mutual engagement. You are worth hurting with. Brothers and sisters, that's true of everyone here. I don't have to be afraid of being polluted by your pain, of being overwhelmed and crushed, because I belong to a Savior who saves, the one who raised that dead boy. I'm not going to die by experiencing your pain with you. I have a friend who texted me this morning. And he learned he learned that last night his best friend committed suicide. And as we were talking together, I reminded him that he's not alone. But he wrote a text that said, thank you, Steve. I just want him back. I wrote back, I understand that to the boundaries of my soul. Brothers and sisters, we understand loss. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. You will not die when you hurt but you will share life. We're called to pick one another up with humble approachability. We're free. We're free to see our sin. We're free to see where we fall. We're free to see others' failures. And in humility, we are free to come back and to stand with those who hurt to stand with those who sin, to stand with those who do damage, and to pick them up. Jesus picked up Simon the Pharisee when he was having dinner with him at his house, and Simon was rude and obnoxious, not only to Jesus, but to the woman. And Jesus said, Simon, there's two sinners. You're not as big a sinner as this woman. But she's repented and is forgiven. If you don't repent, you face judgment for your sin. We don't know how Simon responded, but we know Jesus picked him up. Jesus picked up the teacher of the law in Luke 10, where he was sharing about the Good Samaritan. Here's a man who came to trap Jesus, who came to cause problems for Jesus, and Jesus spoke to his heart and pointed out to him his desperate need to be picked up by telling him the story of one he hated so desperately, a Samaritan, who did well. But along with mutual knowledge and mutual engagement must be 
mutual respect. How will I pick up? How will I pick you up? With criticism? With condemnation? With contempt? Will I make clear to you the sin that you committed and the need you have to escape? Or will I see you as the image bearer that you are and the fellow sinner that you are? I like Bonhoeffer's quote as well. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession to the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. The face of a forgiven sinner. We're called to respect one another. And so let's go back to that passage in Matthew 7 where we're told, don't go for the speck until you've dealt with the plank. There must be humility in our engagement with one another. But respect doesn't mean I abandon you. Respect doesn't mean I live within the polite cultural constraints that say, I certainly don't see what I just saw. I, I, I'm sorry, but I can't look to see why the carpenter ants are flying out that window. Looks good to me. Paint job is perfect. Little hole. Respect does not mean I leave you alone. Respect does not mean I assume others will pick you up. Woe to the one who does not have another who will lift them up. Am I picking you up for your good? It's time consuming. Because instead of coming in with my expert advice and telling you exactly what you've done and how it's wrong and what you need to do to do it better, I come in and I care. I come in alongside. Like Job's friends, I come and I sit with you. One of the most profound examples of this kind of fellowship for me was the day that Anne died. Back to the day after Anne died. My brother just sat with me for four hours. There was a connection. It's been profound. And it, it's something we need to do. You are worth hurting with. Mutual respect has the key thought, I believe in you. I don't have to fix you. I don't have to take you apart and help you to understand where you're broken. I believe in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have all the resources you need to do well, but you ought not do well alone. I don't leave you to fix yourself. I work with you in the process of that journey. Not in the sense of you've got 35 minutes. I'm with you. 
you matter. And Jesus is at work. We're called, when we give to each other mutual respect, to live with attention of messy circumstances and point each other to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, everyone has a Savior. He does the job. He saves. Those who've been saved have the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies. We are works in progress, and we are works in progress who are worthy of being cared for. So again, I want to encourage us. You have, a, you have a wonderful opportunity after this service to engage, to talk, to make eye contact, to listen, to observe, to think about what it is that you see. Sometimes just to sit with someone. If you see somebody sitting alone, go sit with them. Young, old, in between. Communicate to them that they are worth being with, in joy or in sorrow. And we can do that because we have a Savior who has honestly saved. The foundation of this kind of fellowship must be a radical belief that what Jesus came to do, he did. And that I am truly and utterly saved, and I am truly and utterly safe. And that my ability to overcome pain isn't the limit of my ability to engage with pain. The fundamental message is that you are worth hurting with. Then I will be able to rejoice as well. But this is the Christian life. It is community. It is what will create a hunger in the world around us for what we have and why we have it. Hebrews talks about living a life that is a challenge to the world around you because you have hope, you have a savior, and you're not alone. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Actually, that's First Peter, not Hebrews. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Hold on to that hope. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who saves. You created, we're here. You have related with us. You have brought us to a conviction of sin. You help us to understand the ongoing battle we have with sin. But Father, we are people of fear. And we begin to doubt whether or not we have the resources to overcome the suffering. Ours before we can even begin to deal with others. I pray that you would help us to recognize that we do not suffer alone. We do not rejoice alone. That we are created to live in community and that that is an essential aspect of our identity. It is, it is unshakable. We might deny it, but we can't live apart from it because we live in community. We are by essence the body of Christ. And so I pray that you would give us an ability to do that with greater skill. I do pray 
that you would give us the ability to speak, to hear, to act, that what we know we would know with a call to respond, that we would do so out of love for you and love for one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us an ability in that confidence of the gospel as we stand in the belief that Jesus has died for sin, has risen from the dead, and has given us life, that we would be a people who challenge those around us, not in the sense of criticism or contempt, but with love. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of love, that we would not be a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal, <clears throat> but that you, by your Spirit, would bring such a deep and profound conviction in us of the safety we have in Jesus, that we would love well, that we would not be the older brother who's afraid of what we will lose, because honestly, we can't lose it. All that you have is ours. All. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would recognize in that profound sense of safety a calling to engage, a calling to respect. And I pray that the outcome would be a community that can't be ignored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.